we don't have any extra time to fail any more kids. And Minnesota really has to review what are the systems in place that are creating this Minnesota paradox. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Native Minnesota, a podcast about the Native American experience in Minnesota and beyond. I'm your host, Rebecca Crook Stratton. We have a great show today, but before I introduce my guest, I'd like to share a little more about this series. This podcast is a project of Understand Native Minnesota, a campaign to improve the narrative about Native Americans in Minnesota's public schools. I serve as the secretary treasurer of my tribe, the Shakopee Midwakton Sioux community. My tribe launched this campaign to bring greater public awareness and knowledge about Native Americans and their communities. My guest today is Ramona Quito Stately, the Executive Director of We Are Still Here Minnesota and Chair of the Minnesota Indian Education Association. Ramona is a wonderful leader who has vast experience in Indian education here in our state. I'm excited to welcome her to today's episode. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast episode was recorded earlier this summer. You'll hear Ramona and me talk about the Indigenous Education for All legislation, which unfortunately did not pass during this year's legislative session. Good morning, Ramona. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to have a conversation with you today. Um, Your wealth of knowledge on so many topics uh, is going to make for a great podcast episode. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, Currently, you join us as the executive director of We Are Still Here Minnesota, uh, which is a relatively new endeavor for you. Um, I'd I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, maybe your career in the past and then kind of how you got to uh, We Are Still Here, Minnesota. Good morning and thank you so much, Rebecca, for having me here today. Um, I'm excited to be a part of the podcast. Um, So I have been a part of Indian education. In fact, I directed Indian education for the Osseo School District for 15 years and what a blessing. The mission of Indian education is to enhance the cultural identity of the native child. Um, So what that really means is that we are providing instruction and information to native kids in the school that they're not getting normally. Uh, They are learning about their history and their culture and uh, everything that's associated with those things, star knowledge. things that aren't normally offered in the regular school. And the idea is to create community with students um, and and help them to feel like they see some reflection in the curriculum that uh, makes them proud. You know, hey, that's uh, my tribe. Those are my people. It is a wonderful experience to be able to provide that cultural understanding to kids in, in, K-12 education. But the problem is it's kind of like uh, preaching to the choir, right? They, uh, The kids that really know about Native education are the ones that are learning uh, because they learn it from school, because they're Native. But really, the larger group does not learn anything. So um, when I was given the opportunity to take a different job in a different position, it was it was hard for me because I'm, I'm passionate about Indian education, but I knew that there is a ceiling of opportunity to make a change in a school district as, as good as Osseo School uh, was in being pretty responsive, there has to be a different change. And so we are still here in Minnesota was uh, call to action. Really, it was a response. Uh, we are a, re- a response to a call to action uh, to national research. And as unbelievable, Rebecca, as it is, there was national research that's never been done where white America or all America really was asked, what do you know about Native Americans? And they were, they answered lots of questions. But what was Uh, found throughout that research was 57% of Americans didn't know that Indians were still here. 
And um, really, a lot of the narrative is perpetrated in, in K-12 education. We don't talk about Native people. So really, they're invisible. So really, it makes sense. You know, we're growing humans in, in that education system that don't know anything about Native people. Uh, so we are still here in Minnesota was a call to action uh, because of that research study. And um, we're the only state who has really uh, answered that call to action so far. But the idea of we are still here in Minnesota is to work together as networks of Native people to change a narrative, uh, to replace facts, fact with fiction in K-12 education, uh, in media pop culture, uh, and to make sure that uh, we are working together to not only spotlight what's, what our narratives, uh, how our narratives are dehumanizing and hurting Native people, but also to spotlight and amplify us as contemporary people. And I think that's probably the most important thing is that we are still here, um, especially in Minnesota. So I think it's um, important to know that we are still here. We are contemporary. Uh, we are very much like everybody else in our state. And the history that we have overcome in 160 years in our state of being invisible, of genocidal tactics, things like that, um, my son likes to say, this doesn't define who we are. It was a point in history. And I, I understand that, but I say it, it kind of does define who we are because we are so much more than that. Um, there have been things that have perpetrated, been perpetrated on our people, but we are still here and we are thriving. And to look at us in a contemporary way um, shows that the knowledge, culture, history, that we have had in Minnesota for over 10,000 years makes, helps us to be resilient, helps us to remember who we are, the foundation, but also ways of being able to change with the times. Yeah, I, I think that resiliency, um, you know, being, being invisible for so long, uh, and sharing, you know, the richness of our, our cultures and our history and how resilient our people have been in the face of just unimaginable odds when it came to policies that were put in place to really wipe out Native American people. Um, but we are still here and we do stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of that drives us, right? That, that standing on the shoulders of our ancestors and, you know, moving forward despite those odds um, I know for me, it, it's definitely family. And I think about my grandparents and um, the things they endured in boarding schools and the effects that had on, on our families. I'd like to just step back a little bit. And can you talk a little bit about your family and your upbringing as a, as a Dakota person and then how that really you know, influenced how you work, whether it's in K through 12 education or um, currently and we are still here in Minnesota? Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, understanding, uh, so, so my father was born and raised in Santee, Nebraska. His parents were fluent Dakota speakers, both his parents. Um, and he was not allowed to learn any Dakota. And it was kind of uh, a sign of the times, you know, in the 50s, uh, in the 40s and 50s, uh, that it was easier to pass for any other culture, Italian, than to be an, a native person in Minnesota, in Nebraska, where uh, he his our tribe lives in exile. Um, and so in when he was 12, his mother brought him and his parents brought him to Minnesota on, in the Relocation Act. And he uh, went to school and high school here, sent, uh, Marshall High School. Um, and he went on to college. He was the 12th Native American to uh, graduate from the University of Minnesota, but, um, and went into the Navy. And when he finally got a job, it was in Florida. It was with Honeywell's Space and Strategic Systems. So we moved to Florida and um, 
that was where I grew up most of my life, you know, uh, in St. Petersburg. So it's a peninsula. It's surrounded by water. Uh, so it's very much like Minnesota, lots of water. You know, I'm definitely a water person, uh, but I grew up there and, you know, it's interesting to be native in Minnesota and native in Florida, because first of all, there really, especially when I was growing up, there was no native community, very small. And so you didn't experience any kind of racism there like you do here as a native person. And I, I didn't move here till I was 20, 27 to go to the University of Minnesota. So I grew up in Florida. Um, I grew up, I mean, I, I moved here to learn the Dakota language at the University of Minnesota. And when I moved here, I remember I was with this young lady, uh, Nichez Bolio, and we were in a store. And she said to me, um, you see that lady, she's watching us. And I was like, what? She says, yeah, she's watching us to make sure we don't steal anything. And I was like, I was thinking, what? I, I did not believe her. And so I just kind of kept an eye on this lady and she definitely was. And so it really shocked me. And that was just one of the first times I was like slapped in the face with this understanding that being a native person in Minnesota is definitely a different experience. So you came to the University of Minnesota to learn Dakota language, but you said your dad was a fluent Dakota speaker. Um, my grandparents were fluent Dakota speakers, but refused to pass on the language to my dad and his, my uncles um, because, you know, as you said, it it was hard to be a native person. They really were thought they were doing the right thing by, um, you know, setting them up to live in a Western world and get a Western education and kind of leave some of those cultural and traditional practices behind so that they could maybe get a leg up. Um, so when you when we think about you know, a lot of the things that were lost because of that mindset and having to relearn them essentially as the next generation, because that generation kind of was skipped in passing on those traditions and stuff. Um, talk about maybe the the adventure or the, the journey, uh, learning your language again and kind of coming back to Minnesota and, and having to you know, find people that would help teach you uh, and how, you know, how you were embraced or maybe weren't at some point. Yeah, so I moved to Minnesota at 27 and uh, started to learn the language. Um, I had a lot of family here, Rebecca. I, I was blessed that, uh, you know, many, many relatives lived here. So First was my, my, my grandmother had already passed, but um, her best friend was Naomi Cavender and she was a fluent speaker uh, as well. And uh, I would actually take her to Dakota language class with me. Um, and she taught me a lot. And, you know, the language is, is codified. There's so much knowledge and coding that goes with each word. You could actually spend the whole class on a word, um, but she would, tell me so many stories about, about that word, um, like Mani. So we know that Mani in Minnesota, it's part of the name of our state, but Mani means water, it's our first medicine. But um, Ni is our life force, you know? So we're connecting this knowledge, like this way of knowing that water is our life force, right? And so, what are the other foundations of just that word is that, and, and ways of knowing and understanding this place is that we have to protect that water. Um, when there is a language that is over 10,000 years old that was not previously written down, there are so many nuances, there are so many levels of understanding and information that's passing to generations through that language. Um, it took me many, many years of learning to connect all the pieces, you know, to understand and to see the big picture of mitakuye oyasi. When we say that, you know, we are all related is kind of how uh, we see it. So when we hear the word mitakuye oyasi, it doesn't really mean we are all related. It really means that all of life is related to me. 
And so that's a whole different way of seeing the world. That's a whole different way. If you have a foundational understanding that all of life is related to me, then you make different decisions, right? So in the span of 150 years in our state, we've polluted every lake and river, every lake and river. And that's 150 years of making decisions because you're not connected to the water as a relative, right? So um, I continue to learn. I continue to uh, break down words and uh, understand every day. And luckily my son is um, a learner and a mentor to other families of Dakota language. So he helps me too now. And another thing that's really uh, helped is that there's been this change in the way we write our language. And um, with this new orthography, we're able to link to Lakota and, uh, and Nakota and link our dictionaries, which we hadn't been able to do in the past because it was written differently. So now that uh, in using that different orthography, we can have access to so many more information, so much more information and link to mobile apps that you can look up your word, you know? So it's exciting, uh, but we really are in a desperate place with language revitalization and it has to really be our next first um, action to save that language and make sure that it it's maintained because it's, there's so much information there. Yeah, and I, I think that's a lifelong commitment. I know I've started to um, try to learn Dakota and it it's a it's a lot. It can be overwhelming at times, but still such a um, it it really is medicine for your spirit too, to it, it feels good to have that community and speak that language and, you know, do what we can to, to hold on to it. I know I took a linguistics class when I was in college and um, that was in Arizona and they were talking about many of the communities in California and how every single day um, a person would pass and a language would die. And it just broke my heart, um, you know, to even think about that. And I know it's still happening daily. So holding on to these languages is so, so important for our communities and our culture. And um, so I, I'm excited to see a lot of the things that are going on here in Minnesota, especially to um, revitalize and, and hold on to languages. So thank you for, for all you do to keep learning and sharing. Um, I think it's fantastic. So you were in Osseo school, school District for 15 years. You had some really great successes there. You improved the graduation rates, um, really worked with the school districts and the families. And um, how do some of those successes uh, translate into what you're doing currently with We Are Still Here Minnesota? So some of the excess successes at Osseo can be attributed directly to kind of my understanding of the philosophy of We Are Still Here Minnesota, because we worked in a school district or I did, that was led by women, mostly led by women in that 15 years. Um, and I feel like women leadership is a little bit different than male leadership. I think women lead as mothers, you know, women make different decisions and I could be generalizing, um, but I found that um, there was a little more leeway and flexibility with our programming when we were led by women because uh, Indian education is, uh, it's a program that many people don't understand. They think, well, because, uh, Native kids are not graduating, the graduation rates are low, that it's because they need tutoring and that's what Indian education does. Um, so if you really understand the purpose of it, and as a leader, you make sure that you open up any or, or get rid of any barriers, that's when your program th thrives, right? Because the idea is to enhance the cultural identity. So Osseo was pretty good at that. Um, we were able to uh, make our own decisions about programming and the things that we did, uh, but also we were able to work with uh, the school board, uh, 
the learning leaders and providing them with place-based learning about our state that teachers don't know, that we never taught in K-12. And so that opened up to us being able to teach teachers and all of that was paid for by uh, achievement and integration. And those are decisions that are solely made by your district, right? So not many districts are gonna do that. <clears throat> but uh, we saw the way it changed how teachers teach, um, the, even the vocabulary that they use in the classroom, uh, understanding that the master narrative that is embedded in K-12 education is derogatory toward Native people if it's there. And so we were able to have 100% graduation rates. We were able to bring students along. Uh, so I knew, I knew that this idea of changing the way we teach kids was going to be successful. We are still here in Minnesota actually uh, brings a network of experts together to, uh, to work to change legislation. So now I'm not in a small school district where there's a ceiling and that you have to hope that the leadership is going to open the doors and remove barriers. But um, when there's legislation attached to that and all people and teachers have the tools to learn, um, it makes a difference. And that difference can be made in, in a generation, Rebecca. And I think that's what's important. So you're not uh, only able to teach teachers who need the tools to do it, but also the whole community. And uh, we need to move in that direction and stop feeling like as a, as a community that it's okay to dehumanize certain people, a certain group of people based on race um, and to spotlight and amplify uh, all of those amazing things that we're doing, especially, especially with our tribal nations. Um, I think people are surprised to really know the, the contemporary facts of the contributions of our native nations in this state. What were some of the most common barriers that native students in the Osteo district faced? And, and for you know teachers and administrators that might listen to this podcast, what are some recommendations for addressing those barriers um, so that they can maybe see some of the same success you had in Osseo School District? Oh, Rebecca, that's such a good question. And um, so when you have this whole group of, of teachers and you have school board and you have learning leaders and they're all on board and they're saying, go, you know, do your stuff with Indian education because we know that you've already had a proven track record and you get to the school and the, the person that actually does your passes and gets your students into your classroom doesn't do it. And so all of the money, all of the time, all of my expertise, I have a master's degree in education. I'm not just, you know, I uh, feel like you have all of this expertise and all of this help. And it's like, here we all come and you can't even see your student. And that is where the breakdown happens. And quite frankly, um, Rebecca, I don't know what it's gonna take to change that. One of the other barriers that we noticed at, at Osseo that has changed, and but this was a big barrier. Every single year we'd start Indian education, we would have to compile a new list of native students and we would have to identify and count them. And this was a list that was really papers and stacks of papers of parents who had uh, enrolled their kids for Indian education. Um, it was very hard to compile the data. I mean, we had to be experts in all ways, Excel spreadsheets and um, all the data. And um, what Osseo did was actually change the way they collect the data, like the, the, the enrollment system and added a section for native kids and were they federally recognized or not federally recognized. There's a, a state count and a federal count. So it gets uh, really tedious. And so now it's automatic. 
and Indian Education have access. We have access to actually go in and, and see those files, which we should. Uh, but there are a lot of barriers and districts don't have to remove them right now. Um, but if we look at uh, 50 years of being the worst state or the second to the worst state, 49th or 50th in successfully graduating uh, Native students, we have to make different decisions and we have to do it right away because we don't have any extra time to fail any more kids. And Minnesota really has to review what are the systems in place that are creating this Minnesota paradox. Have you heard that word? Ramona is the executive director of We Are Still Here Minnesota, an influential organization that's focused on replacing fiction with facts in K-12 education and finding solutions for issues impacting Native communities. I encourage you to learn more by following them at washmn.org on Facebook. I haven't heard the Minnesota paradox word, but I you know, thinking about Minnesota and we do a lot of things really well, but the achievement gap in our indigenous and students of color almost seems like it continues to grow rather than shrink despite some of the things that are in place. I think about the Minnesota Indian Education Act that's been in place since the 80s, but really has done nothing to address that achievement gap for our students. Um, what what are some of the issues there that, uh, you know, are are contributing or, or not contributing to that gap? So every single day a white student goes into a classroom, they hear about their heroes. They hear about people that they aspire to. They hear about people that look like themselves, constantly reaffirming their presence and their history. And that does not happen. That does not happen to black, brown, and indigenous kids in a classroom. Uh, that has to change because we look at our graduation rates from for four years, right? So we're looking at the dropout rate in that four-year period. Many, many of our students leave well, well before that, well before the ninth grade. So it's worse than we really even know. Uh, it's important to tell the truth of our history and to make sure that all, all students, regardless, don't get a month. It has to be, you know, we get a month, what May, uh, the month of May for Indian month where we talk, maybe we do talk about native history. Uh, uh, we have black history month. We have to talk about all people. We have to understand that um, there are so many rich uh, cultural understandings and ways of knowing um, and when we, when we break, when we raise children to know that not only is there a way of knowing this way, but this way, and how do the Ojibwe view star science? Because they have been looking at the stars for millennia and the Dakota have been looking at star and the Hawaiian, right? Based on where you are in the world, your star science is a little different and everyone has a way of knowing that. But when you teach children that, there's not just one way, there are many. You're creating amazing critical thinkers. And that's our job as teachers, you know, critical thinking. So, um, and now we've really gotten to like teaching kids about testing, you know, who's, who's, um, who is making out there when, when we teach kids to take a test? Probably the people who are creating the tests. It's probably a financial, economical uh, decision. Uh, but if we really think about kids, if we really think about growing strong future leaders, which is exactly what we wanna do, we want future leaders to make better decisions than the, than the last ones have, especially in the last 150 years in Minnesota where we <clears throat> poisoned every lake and river. So we have to change the way we teach and we have to be inclusive of, of more history than this narrative that was written by white men with a different cultural lens. And so how do we as Native people, um, you know, become allies for 
uh, indigenous causes across the state? You know, how do we push our school districts to include this information? How do we ensure that teachers have the, the training that they need to, you know, deliver that? Um, what are the things we can do? And, you know, especially non-Indigenous people, I think that's one of the things we've highlighted in, you know, we are still here in Minnesota and some of the other initiatives to change the narrative across the country that we really need allies, non-Indigenous allies to um, help with this movement. Yeah, so uh, we are still here in Minnesota right now, are supporting uh, some legislation in this in the state uh, that is called Indian Education for All. Uh, now, you mentioned the Indian Education Act in 1980 that was supposed to help this achievement gap. In 2010, we actually had a state um, a state statute that said that every teachers must teach about Ojibwe and Dakota culture. In, and, and history in all disciplines. And we thought that was, you know, we thought that was amazing. That's gonna make a change. But what we realized is that teachers don't have the tools to teach. And so this indigenous education for all will provide teachers with the tools they need, uh, an authentic understanding of Dakota and Ojibwe uh, culture, history and language in their classroom, in every discipline, in art, in PE, what are the, you know, we have uh, games and uh, lacrosse and uh, ways of, of understanding. So in all disciplines, but what we did not really understand was that we have not given teachers the time to learn, uh, the information to learn. And so in supporting this Indian education for all legislation, it will give the teachers what they need and um, it will, give school districts understanding. There's another part to that, which is that our tribal nation, our tribal relations training uh, for school leaders, it will not only give them the budget to learn, but also uh, training to um, better consult and engage with American Indian students and families and tribal nations. So it really brings uh, all of these decision makers together for the, for the sake of the children. Yeah. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, you know, that if that legislation passes, um, plays out and, you know, in a different way than the Minnesota Indian Education Act, or um, like you said, in 2010, uh, we're definitely, that's definitely something I, I've been watching to, to see because it can get a little controversial. Uh, which is unfortunate because I think Indigenous education is definitely, you know, it, it's American history. So there's definitely a, a place for, for all of our histories, um, not just Indigenous people, but I think, you know, Black people, pe all people of color have a unique history in the United States. So, um, yeah. So we are still here in Minnesota. Um, I know it came out of research that was reclaiming native truth, uh, which also is something that is informing our campaign, um, Understand Native Minnesota. And our campaign is really focusing on K through 12. And I know that's a component of we are still here in Minnesota, but there are some other areas uh, that your group is focusing on. Can you talk a little bit about those other areas um, as far as changing the narrative and, and some of the focuses? Yes, yeah, so um, as a part of the Reclaiming Native Truth research, what we found out uh, in reading was uh, there are a lot of great Native organizations that are doing great work across our country. What we're not doing is sharing that work, engaging and supporting one another. Um, so we are still here. Minnesota is compiled of four task force groups. So we have K-12 education, uh, we have governance and policy, we have philanthropy and pop culture and media. So we have a task force for each of those areas who are working separately uh, like K-12, we are writing um, authentic curriculum, we are writing training for teachers, things like that. 
but we are also we also get together as a whole and help each other in what they're doing. So we are supporting this legislation, the Indian Education for All. Uh, it's necessary for K-12 education, but we don't have the knowledge in that advocacy bit. So governance and policy helps us. Pop culture and media uh, will get the word out. And then philanthropy helps us with our funding. So each group works separately in their in what they're doing, uh, focusing on one particular thing or many particular things. But we also reach across and work together. And I think that's the beauty of we are still here in Minnesota is that we're not used to doing that. And in supporting this legislation, legislation recently, um, I am also the chairperson of Minnesota Indian Education Association. And so we were able to bring together, understand Native Minnesota, Minnesota Indian Education, the Tribal Nations Education Committee, and we are still here in Minnesota into a webinar to explain the legislation. Um, I think if we understand the purpose of it and the beauty of it, uh, and to not get it mixed up with the state standards. It's, it's, I think that's where there's a pushback about it. But when we can get together and talk about how it impacts all of those different groups and allow people to ask questions and understand, um, we get more support and we get uh, more movement. So I'm, I too, Rebecca, am very, very hopeful that this passes. I think it'll make a tremendous change. Uh, when I mentioned before the Minnesota paradox, uh, this is part of Governor Walz's uh, uh, Minnesota, Minnesota, one Minnesota plan. And the idea is to uh, help all kids learn. So right now, if you live in our state, it is the best place to live. It's the, got the best parks. It's It's got uh, like roads, the most road scholars. It has 3M and the Mayo Clinic. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful state if you're white. And if you're not, it's the worst. So a new, a new term has been coined. It's called the Minnesota Paradox and it exactly describes this. Uh, so I know that our state legislature has been looking at and requesting data on how much does it cost in our state to be racist. And um, so we're looking at the impact of this system that is creating this paradox where it's the best place to live if you're white and it's the worst if you're a person of color. So how do we do that differently? And how do we uh, make sure that all people thrive in Minnesota? That's how, how are they collecting that data? I'm curious you know what who's in charge of that project so it says that the the house select committee on racial justice was established by the minnesota legislature in 2020 um and it says to declare and address racism as a public health crisis and to understand house legislation efforts are analyzed through an intersectional racial equity lens so it focuses on um, really a system that uh, reinforces economic disparities. And then it looks at, you know, everything, housing and health and jobs and um, mortgage loans. And, I mean, many, many things. But it's very interesting uh, to me. I mean, we know kids are failing. We, we know a lot of this research, but we finally now have to get down to actually helping people and, and, and lawmakers understand that this is really true based on the economy. You know, like we already know kids are failing. We've known it for 50 years, but they still need more information to make change. And that's troubling to me. And I think if we, these are the same K-12s, right? Our leaders are, have been through our own system. So we really need to make sure that things are in place so they understand it, uh, the differences and, and the beauty of our histories and culture as 
uh, in growing up and why that's important. It's like, we, we understand it's important for the diversity and the health of a garden, right? We get that. It's no different. It's no different with people. So this is an, a report that, you know, they, I feel like uh, drives the point home, you know, helps them make a decision, especially based on economics, you know, but regardless of how they come to the decision, I really know that um, this is something that has to happen for, for the future. Yeah, and I think, you know, shedding light on some of those, uh, the data, the misconceptions, um, you know, understanding that our, our leaders across the state, whether it's the legislature or school boards, um, don't know what they don't know because the information was never given to them in K through 12. They didn't learn it in higher education. I mean, what do you think are some of the, the biggest misconceptions that we have across our state that are, you know, contributing to these continued barriers that indigenous communities and communities of color face to really get a, a leg up in Minnesota? Um, I'll have to say that some of the misconceptions, Indians don't care, they don't care about their kids, Blacks don't care, they don't care about their kids, they don't care about an education. Um, but when we look even at the systems of oppression and the way, the difference in um, how white families and people of color are treated just in in getting ahead and getting a better job and having good health care, things like that. I mean, that is very oppressive. Um, and it's the misconception is not that we don't care. It is that we're so, so incredibly challenged. And when we finally, uh, so especially I'll, I'll focus on native people. So we have a history of boarding school. We have a history of stealing our children for, for the purpose of assimilation, which goes back to this conversation we had about our language and how it impacts us and how it makes us feel and our ancestors and our connection to that. Um, all of that was targeted specifically in boarding schools to take it away, to kill the Indian and save the man. That was the motto. Um, so we have native families that don't want anything to do with public education. We know we have to send our kids to school. Uh, there's no trust in public education unless there is some sort of um, relationship set up, which there's not. Um, and so we're not so apt to really uh, go to the parent-teacher conferences, right? Um, so it really comes down to, is there trust? And, and are my children feeling empowered? Are they inspired by the heroes that you're teaching about, right? So I feel like um, the misconceptions are that we don't care. And there's also an ignorance to what is that oppression to black people? What is that Minnesota paradox? Um, we have to open up our hearts and minds to, is there something I'm not, I'm missing? And I think as a white Minnesotan, there is. Um, and they don't have to know. I mean, the thing about you know racism is that it's it's an underlying factor. And if you're white, you don't have to acknowledge it. You don't have to learn about it. You can go your whole life and not have that conversation. Where we live it every day, we have the conversation every day, and it's a muscle. It's just like building a muscle. So if you're not used to exercising it, if you're not used to having the conversation, it's it's challenging. And if you're the one in your family that's trying to have that conversation and everyone else is not in that position or ready, then you're, you're kind of the outcast, right? So it's challenging, but it's important. And I think if we really care about the future of our state and our relatives, and I'm talking about the air quality, and I'm talking about the water quality, the, the quality of the plants that actually give us breath, um, we have to make, we have to really make some different changes. Yeah, and I, I think 
a lot of the the things tribal communities are doing um, to address a lot of the issues, whether you know it, it's the barriers that are in place to get our our children to graduate, um, you know, down to the the smallest things. Do our our kids have full bellies, and are they in a place where they can learn? You know, do they have access to adequate health care, and and is that you know inability to access good health care keeping them from school? Um, all those things are, are things that we think about every day, but I think a lot of people don't think about, but tribes are doing, and Indian communities across the state, you know, we have a huge urban Indian population, um, are doing a lot of things internally to to address those issues. And I think sometimes, you know, we have to maybe share a little more. And, you know, when we find things that work, uh, make sure that we do what we can to um, get those into the broader communities. And in your work, you know, what what are some of the things as you've been working with, you know, Minnesota and Indian education programs across the state? I know you've developed some fantastic trainings that um, help parent committees get started and address some of the issues that are going on in schools, you know, with teachers and administrators that prevent these programs from really taking off or getting the resources that they need. Um, how do you kind of shed light on some of those barriers and issues and help, you know, to empower uh, parents to address those? Yeah, so uh, I think what's really important and, and, and integral to this work, Rebecca, are white allies. That's a powerful uh, part of this equation to move forward. When we look at our state, 95% of our teachers are white women. Many, many of those white women are millennials. So when we look at that uh, research, we see that those are some of our strongest allies, white women, millennials, young white women. Um, it has to be a part of uh, understanding. So the trainings have to include and be accessible to not just our native community to learn like how to navigate this system, but also to include our white allies to uh, help navigate this system and to understand. And, and, you know, that's been a huge part of my work for the last at least eight years is really focusing on white allies to help. And I think that has had a tremendous impact, uh, not only on me, but on, on our white allies is to think, okay, we have to, uh, you know, this, this problem didn't happen with just native people or or our non-native people, it happened, it, this is what we have. This is what we're left with and we have to make that change and we have to rely on those white allies because they're the ones who are actually in the, in the school. So um, being the chair of Minnesota Indian Education uh, where they have a conference once a year and bring together uh, all kinds of people and experts on best practices Understanding parent committees, what are my rights? You know, uh, Native American parent committees have more rights than any other parent committee in our state. And they should be exercised, except we're not able to share that information, you know, all, always. So um, bringing all of these networks together to reinforce the knowledge, to make sure that parents have the tools they need that parents understand that once a year, they get a voice with their school board, um, that what their children are learning has to be signed off by them. And there's a budget associated with them, with that. There's no other group that has the kind of uh, strength and voice that native parents have. So um, I'll have to say it takes the whole community. We have to work together. We have to provide opportunities for all people to um, have those conversations, to ask questions especially. And so uh, we get to do that once a year, but we should be doing it, you know, once a month. We should be doing it all the time, providing uh, opportunities for all people to engage in, in conversations and, and learning. Yeah, I think too, we should probably circle back and talk about, you know, those parent committees and the, the, 
power that is placed and the funding that is placed uh, in districts on behalf of Native students, you know, I think one of the biggest misconceptions across the country is that Indians get special privileges or um, they get free stuff from the government. And, um, you know, I, I always try to tell people that that's not true. Um, Natives probably get less than most people across the the country when it comes to access to healthcare and education and some of those basic services but there's a unique relationship there and some of the funding and things that are there put in place to help native communities are because of a unique political relationship um, that native people hold here in the United States and um, looking at Native Americans as a um, a political class and not a race is one of the reasons that these benefits are in place. And I know I'm, I'm speaking to the choir here when it comes to you and I talking, but can you maybe talk a little bit about how you have um, educated folks in the different systems about that unique status and how, you know, what are some good ways to explain that and dispel, you know, the, the myth that Indian people get free stuff. Yeah, and you know, um, that is probably one of the biggest uh, pieces of misinformation that Americans get. Um, but I, I, I really feel like that information, Rebecca, comes from a feeling of guilt, a feeling of um, not only guilt, but misunderstanding. So Native people have a unique political status with United States, uh, because we are nations and we have treaties. And um, that's why sovereignty is such an important uh, foundational understanding, starting in kindergarten, you know, color the, the flags of the nations in your state. Um, it's important to understand that nations, there's no treaties unless it's nation to nation relationships, right? And so our native nations are sovereign um, they sign treaties with the United States, which gives us a unique political status. We are nations within a nation. Um, and according to the United Nations, one, one side doesn't just get to pull out of treaties, you know, and just decide, yeah, we made that agreement, but we're not going to stand by them. So they might be broken, but they're not, they haven't disappeared. They're still promises and negotiations made by two nations, you know, by two nations. And there's 403 of those treaties that have never been, um, they've never been, uh, what was promised was not, ne never happened, right? They were all broken. 403 treaties, not one ever kept. Uh, that gives you an idea of the intention. Um, but that makes us, that gives us this unique political status. We have the ability to govern ourselves, to create our own political uh, policies, uh, to create our own policing, healthcare. Um, and also it gives us a unique status as far as education goes. So uh, we have an Indian education program. It, uh, it is funded by how, uh, I guess they're all funded in different ways, um, but the federal ones are funded as a result of treaties, you know? That's part of the, the obligation that the U.S. government has to our Native nations. Um, also that our parents get, a, 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 according to the 1980 Indian Education Act, our parents have a very specific say about what happens uh, to their, their children. And this is because of boarding school, right? So if we have a group of leaders in a school district that have no idea about sovereignty, that cannot normally answer the question of how many Native nations are in our state, how can we expect them to make good decisions and to remove boundaries that are prevalent in, in our school districts for parents and to actually help uh, the Indian education program do what it was really designed to do. So there's so much pushback. Um, many of our Indian education directors are white. So they don't have the same understanding 
as a native person would or connection to community, you can, um, I think you can say, wow, I get, you know, connecting to community. But when you're making decisions about your own, it's different. Um, there has to be a relationship. There has to be an understanding. Um, we have many people who are in our country who are not connected to place. Um, and we call it, the, the, that connection for us is the umbilical. You know, it's the umbilical. Like we, like a, a child in the womb is connected by umbilical. We are too to our mother. So the decisions we make are, are so important. So uh, I guess what I'm getting at is our leadership needs to be native um, and white allies really need to help us remove the barriers. And that's when uh, we are most successful. But until we grow a generation of people who understand the true history, uh, stop the stereotypes, stop misunderstandings and, and complete baseless uh, assumptions that we don't pay taxes, that we get government help. Um, I think that until all of those things are addressed, we're gonna continue to be challenged. I agree, but I do, I am hopeful, you know, in the work that we're doing with Understand Native Minnesota and um, talking to allies and groups uh, across the state in education, you know, both K through 12 and higher education, I do feel like there is um, a lot of people that, you know, see a need and are, are willing to help and be advocates and, and move some of this narrative change work forward. So I am hopeful and I know we have to wrap up here, but I just kind of want to finish with, um, you know, thinking about that hope and, and our wishes for for Indian education, for Native students, for the state as a whole, you know, what, what are your hopes and dreams for um, for our state, for our students, for, you know, the Minnesota Indian Education Association. Um, we are still here in Minnesota. What, what's your hope that the impact those efforts um, will have in the long term? Um, I am really hopeful, Rebecca, that uh, we can be successful in changing the narrative, in supporting this legislation, that it passes, and also um, to create a truer narrative, um, our tribal nations in our state are the 14th, well, that was, that's old data, but 14th largest employer in our state. Um, I saw the most amazing articles about uh, our tribal nations giving their COVID vaccines to the community, to elders in the community. And some of our, uh, the communities that butt up against our tribal nations, um, actually we're like 90 some percent vaccinated. You know, I love to see the beauty and the generosity and the forgiving forgiveness of our native nations. Um, but I'd like to see uh, a true, truer narrative and that we can work together and we can celebrate the true history of place. Um, and see our, our kids thriving, you know, our students thriving, going back to their communities and bringing back lessons that um, they've learned in college and focusing on things. Um, seeing, communi seeing communities give land back. I know Friends of the Falls has a great um, plan right now to retrieve St. Anthony Falls, that land around that area and to give it back to the Dakota. Um, we've seen some, some instances of that, but um, there are so many resources and uh, richness available that's not tied to a lot, you know, like money, but things that can enrich our lives, you know, if we work together. So, yeah, I'd like to see us work better together and see one another. 
I agree. I definitely agree. Ramona, thank you so much for being here with us today, for having this conversation and sharing your insight and wisdom and knowledge. Um, I know I appreciate it as, as a friend and a colleague, and um, it was a wonderful conversation. So thank you so much. Do you have any um, last words you want to share with us? Uh, my last words is learn, learn about this Indian education for all legislation. Understand it, write a letter, call your, call your representative, um, help move this, this uh, legislation forward because I think it'll be beneficial to our state. I know it will be. Take action. Thank you for joining me for the Native Minnesota podcast. For more episodes, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also visit our website, understandnativemn.org, to learn more about our campaign's work to improve the Native narrative in Minnesota's public schools.